enjoy it now. One of the things we're doing to celebrate the summer here is we're spending the summer in the Psalms. And uh, each week we're taking a look at one sort of exemplary Psalm. The Psalms fall into a number of different kinds or themes or sorts. And, and we're trying to dive really deeply into, into understanding what the Psalm says about God and about us and about the world that we share. And this morning, we're looking at Psalm 98, which you read together so beautifully and effectively, which on the surface looks like it's a psalm just about praise. In fact, Psalms 96, 97, and 98 are remarkably similar, so similar that they're usually read and they're always studied together as a package. And again, it looks like that they deal uh, exclusively with praise. What's the character of praise? What's the importance of praise? But there is underneath the language of praise a real conundrum there in these Psalms. And it's one of the key conundrums of the Bible, one of the real puzzles actually of human thought and the human condition. Let me point it out for you. If you have your Bibles, open them up in Psalm 98 to verse 9. And let's look at the very end there where it says, He comes to judge the earth. Now, this is a praise psalm, right? Everybody's exalting, they're clapping their hands, they're singing together for joy. Why? God's coming to judge. Now, how is that a source of joy? Psalm 97, the companion psalm, puts it very starkly. 97 verse 8 says, The people hear and rejoice, and the villages are glad. Why? Because of the judgments of God. We're talking here about judgment day, the final judgment of the earth. And it's a time for joy. How does that work? So what we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to break this down and look at the psalm in sort of three sections. You'll find a roadmap in your order of service, an outline. But we want to spend a little bit of time and look at just what is being celebrated. The last two-thirds of the psalm, verses 4 through 9, talk about this great promise, the joyful promise of judgment. What is it about judgment that could possibly be joyful? Because that's not normally the word we associate with being judged, is it? A source of joy and celebration and worship and splendor. And then we're going we're gonna to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the problem. What is the conundrum that we're in? What is the problem that this psalm surfaces? And then finally, we're going to look at an answer to the problem, God's provision. So the promise first, the problem And then finally, God's provision that makes judgment not a threat, not an intimidating thing, but a source of great rejoicing. That's our trajectory for today. First, let's talk about the promise. And and by that, again, the question is, what is it that's good about Judgment Day? From verse 4 right through to the end, it talks about the coming of the king. The Lord is coming. And when the king comes, everyone rejoices. Remember Psalms 96, 97, 98, they kind of go together. They're a package. Psalm 96 puts it this way. This is how the psalm ends. It says, let the seas roar and everything that fills them. Let the fields exalt and everything that's in them. Let the trees of the woods sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. And when he comes, he will judge the earth. He will judge the nations with righteousness and the peoples with truth. Psalm 96 adds this this metaphorical language that that it's not just people that are rejoicing, but creation itself, that the trees sing for joy. When? When the king comes back. Why? Because when the king returns, the king is going to judge. 
Uh, it's a metaphor, right? Um, but it's pointing, I think, to a deeper reality than just the idea that the trees are humming along in, in worship. What we're being told here is that when the true king returns, it's not just that some wrong things get righted or that some broken things get mended, but even these inert and latent things, even creation itself explodes into its fullest capacity, the, the full potential that, that lay there kind of dormant and pressed down explodes when the king returns. One of the things that, that we know when we, when we study the Bible in the ancient world is the Bible is not alone in having this kind of uh, this fascination with the language of the king's return. You dig out any compendium of ancient literature, of myths, of fairy tales, of stories. Any of you grew up with those Lang's for fairy tale books? There were 14 or 15 of them from all different cultures. See how often this comes up. It weaves its way like a golden thread right through human literature. The Greeks believe that the golden age would be marked by the return of the true king. Those of you who were raised on a steady diet of English literature, you know the legend of King Arthur, right? And on his tombstone was written the words, here lies the once and future king. A way of saying that, that Camelot, the reign, wasn't just a historical thing. It was the dream of a new world that would come when the king returns. Robin Hood, another one of those popular stories, now movies. You know, Robin Hood was, was fighting for justice until the true king returned. Richard the Lionheart, right? The absolute juggernaut of literature, though, at least in our generation, is Tolkien who titled the climactic volume of his book on Lord of the Rings. Do you remember the third one was called The Return of the King? There it is. And there's this little poem right in the middle of the book. It goes like this. It says, from the ashes, a fire will be awoken. A light from the darkness will spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken. And crownless again shall be the king. What Tolkien does. Tolkien wasn't primarily a writer of fantasy. He was a teacher of ancient literature. What he does is he taps into this deep vein of human imagination, this fascination with how the world will be forever changed when the true king finally returns. And the question that, uh, that might be worth asking as we look at that same language in Psalm 98 is, why is it there? I mean, what is this human fascination with the return of the king. And the, and the human experience would, would actually make us believe that it ought not to be there. Because the real track record of human kings and queens is terrible, isn't it? I mean, it's really pretty awful. That's why we got rid of them. And it's true that we basically have gotten rid of royalty, of monarchy, as a method of governing. But we're still fascinated. We pay all this money to go see movies and read books about them. We're still fascinated with the few remaining members of the royal family that we have left in the world. Why is it that we're so fascinated? That's two answers I'm going to suggest. One, sociological. The other, kind of theological. There may be more, but I could only think of two. But here's the sociological ones. One of the reasons I think we're fascinated with this idea, the return of the king, is that somehow that we know that democracy, democracy for all of its assets, is more like medicine than it is like food. 
it was Winston Churchill, I think, who said that democracy is the worst kind of government except for all the others. <laughs> what is it he's getting at? Is that democracy is unbelievably inefficient. Like I said, it's more like medicine than it is like food. Its main asset is that it basically has a way of tamping down the worst aspects of human nature. It makes it much harder to kill each other and deceive each other and take advantage of each other. But when it actually comes to solving long-term human problems and doing it quickly and expeditiously, it's not so great. We yearn for something beyond medicine. That's the sociological answer. But here's the theological one. I think it's more important. The Bible says that human beings were made in such a way. We're not just dirt. We're not just dust. We're not just molecules. But the, 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 the miraculous part of the creation story is that moment when God scoops up the dust of the earth and into Adam, the dust, becomes Adama. But how? Through the breath of God comes a living soul. And the language that's used to describe that is the Amago Dei, the image of God. That there is something about you. There's something about us that's not just made by God, but made like God. Now, don't get grandiose about it. I mean, it's, you're not God, right? But, but there's a fingerprint left in you, the Amago Dei, the, the image of God. And, and there's this... This latent knowledge, almost like a memory trace of how we were made and who we were made to be. And maybe we're not even conscious of it at some level, but, but it, makes it, it makes us yearn for something that we don't have. It makes us yearn for a world better than the one that we've inherited. It makes us yearn for the kind of person that we know we should be, but we're not yet. That yearning, that, that memory trace is born in the awareness that we were made by and for something wonderful. The Imago Dei. And that there's something within us that longs to get to or get back to the way it was meant to be. The return of the king. When things are finally put right when all the potential that rests within us is fully released, and we start to blossom in places we didn't even realize we had buds. And we know somehow that it's true, and we long for it in our art and our stories, our literature and music, that when the true king finally returns, it will be the end of of evil and injustice. We'll be able to love and not worry about parting. and, And somehow death won't be the foreboding thing that it is. The world will finally be beautiful. And we'll look inside, and, and it'll be beauty all the way down. The stories are kind of like a memory trace. It, it made me think of, <laughs> let me ask it this way. How, it's a riddle. How, how is Maggie Smith like the Bible? Don't try to answer. You won't figure it out. It's awful. It's a bad riddle. But 1991, I think, Steven Spielberg uh, did his take on one of the great mythology stories of the world, the story of Peter Pan, right? And he cast as a as an aging Wendy Darling, Maggie Smith, as an aging forgetful Peter Pan, Robin Williams. Remember, he, he's forgotten all about the stories of who he was when he was Peter Pan, and Maggie Smith. Uh, who is kind of like his latent memory. She looks in at him as he's just starting to wake up to the reality of who he is. 
And she says, Peter, the stories are true. The stories are all true. Now, the Bible doesn't quite say it that way. Not all stories are true. But what it does say is that the thing that all these stories are pointing towards is true. There is a king, magnificent, and he will come back. And when he does, his rule will be one of beauty and greatness and glory. And it's all true. That's how the Bible's like Maggie Smith. But don't quote me on that. That sounds like the kind of thing that gets put out on Twitter that gets a pastor fired. But <laughs> So that's the promise of judgment. But let's, let's shift gears here and, and let's look at the problem because there is a major problem here. And I'm not sure whether you see it, but let's work it out. The problem is when a judge comes back, what is a judge supposed to do? They're supposed to pass judgments. They're supposed to, to correct all the things that have gone off kilter. They're supposed to right the wrongs and deal with the injustices. And there's part of us that longs for it, and there's part of us that is terrified of it. Because among the things that gets corrected are my own missteps, my own defects in character, my own crooked choices. And right there we have a problem. How do you rejoice in Judgment Day when you too fall under judgment? Let me tell you what the biblical problem is, because this is how the Bible frames it. The Bible says that we live in this marvelous relationship that God has crafted between himself and human beings. The language of the Bible is covenant, a covenant relationship. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And our relationship will be governed by this set of blessings that will come when things are working well. And this set of curses that will also follow when things go badly. And the entire Old Testament is basically drawn and driven by this one narrative. It's the tension that that drives the story of the Old Testament forward. And the tension is this. What happens when the covenant begins to unwind? Will God give up and say, sorry, you've broken your promises and I'm abandoning you? And if he does that, what does that mean about God's love and God's faithfulness? So that's one side. But here's the other side that keeps it in tension. Is God going to say, all right, I give in. I mean, yes, you're breaking your promises, but I accept you anyway. What does that say about God's sense of justice and about his holiness? And there are all these places in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where you have statements that, that look like they don't reconcile. They're both sides of that tension. Judges chapter 2, verse 1. Here's an example. God says, I will never break my covenant with you. Lots of places where he talks like that. I will never abandon you. I will always be faithful. I will never break covenant with you. But then there's other places One of the famous ones is in Deuteronomy 29, where Moses says, hey, if you go your own way, the Lord will not be willing to forgive you, and his wrath will burn against you, and all the curses written in the covenant book will fall on you, and the Lord will blot out your name from the book of heaven. Boy, sounds harsh, right? That's not on a lot of church banners, that particular scripture. But If you read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, you'll see these kind of things all over the place, and they seem like they don't reconcile. Here's the covenant. If you follow the promises, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you're cut off. Will God give up on us, or will God give in to us? 
If he gives up on us, what does that say about his love and his faithfulness? If he gives in to us, what does it say about his holiness and his justice? That's the problem, right? Or if you wanted to put it this way, is the covenant of God, is it conditional or is it unconditional? Are the blessings of God conditional or are they unconditional? Uh, do they require perfect obedience or are they given to uh, imperfect people? Which is it going to be? And it almost feels like, as you read the Old Testament, that there is no way to resolve the tension. How can there be an answer? And it splits people right down the middle. And people tend to fall on one side or the other. There's a liberal spirit. There's a conservative spirit. Now, this is not politics. This, the liberal spirit would say, you have to live in perfect obedience to God, otherwise you are cut off. Sorry, that's the conservative spirit. The liberal spirit would say, you may try and obey God, but in the end, he's going to accept you no matter what. Conservative says, well, God loves you, but in the end, you have to obey him or you're cut off. Either you obey God in, in the hope that in the end, he's not going to judge you if you fail, or you submit yourself and subjugate you to God. You do your very best, but no, in the end, you fall under the fires of wrath and judgment. Liberal spirit, conservative spirit. You have Sadducees, you have Pharisees, you have relativists, you have moralists, postmodernists, traditionalists, whatever it is. Even religions break out this way. You have Buddhism, you have Islam. Very different understanding of how human beings stand in relationship to the divine. And everybody breaks to one side or the other. Either the blessings of God are conditional and you have to obey, or they're unconditional and he gives them anyway. You start to, say, you start to sense what the problem is here. Right? Now, what if there is no judgment, like no judgment day? Wouldn't that sort of answer the problem? We just take that away entirely? Everything becomes relative. Everything just goes on and on and on. I want you to imagine for a second what that means for our world. And, and I want you to imagine it through the lens of a, a marvelous Croatian thinker. His name, his name is Miroslav Volf. He, he wrote a book in the mid-90s, and he was writing about the experience of the Balkan genocide in the early 90s. And he's writing to address that exact point. He says, look, I, I know a lot of people think that if you believe in a God of judgment, it makes God look warlike and ferocious and hate-filled and wrathful. And I know you want to believe something else. But listen to what he goes on to write. He says, I've been to places where people have had their mothers and their daughters raped, their fathers and brothers' throats slit, their homes burned to the ground. And if I look them in the eye and say to them, you just need to love your enemies, but there's never going to be a judgment day. There's never going to be a day in which everything is put right. We don't believe in that anymore, but we don't want you to retaliate either. You just need to live at peace. This is what they're going to say. There's no judgment day. There's no God who's ever going to stand on earth and make everything right. Fine, Wolf says, I'll go get my gun and do it myself. No judgment day. What hope for the world? But if there is judgment, what hope is there for you and I? No judgment day, no hope for the world. There is a judgment day, no hope for us. Nobody can stand under the weight of that. That's, 
That's the conundrum. That's the problem. So what's the answer? The answer comes in the first three verses of the psalm. Psalm 98. If you want to open it back up to 98, let's look at those three verses. And again, yes, they're about praise, but they're not just about praise. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known. He's remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel, and all the ends of the earth have seen it. It's all past tense. It's all past tense. It's talking about something that's already happened. Verses 4 through 9, the, the latter half of the psalm, are all about the future. What's going to happen at the end of time? This is all past tense. And the reason that people can look at the future and rejoice, clap their hands and worship and praise is because of what's happened in the past. Let me show you a few things. If you have um, a Bible with cross references, you know what those are? Sometimes down the center column of the Bible, there'll be really, really small print. This is magnifying glass time for people who are over 40. But, but there is a treasure trove of stuff down that center column. And what it really is, if you've never followed it along, this is an apparatus for you to, to explore the whole counsel of God. So on a particular verse, there might be references to, to five or six or ten other verses somewhere in the Bible that quote it or that say something identical or similar or that are somehow related to it. It's this incredible sort of archaeological chase that you get to do through God's Word. If you read the cross-references for Psalm 98, one of the things that will jump right out is that it sounds remarkably like a verse that comes in Exodus chapter 15. Now, why is this important? Exodus, Exodus 15 is, is Miriam singing. Listen to what she sings. Uh, see if this doesn't sound familiar. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel. That's her song. Psalm 98 was just capitalizing on the rich history of what had already been sung before. What's Miriam singing about? After generations of slavery, the children of Israel have finally been delivered from bondage in Egypt. She's singing about the Exodus. Well, you knew that, right? Because it happens in a book called Exodus. With his holy arm, God works his salvation. He remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel. And Miriam is singing this great song of salvation. Here's what I'd like you to keep in mind. How is it that God saved his people? How is it that God delivered the nation of Israel? He did it through judgment. You remember the story of the Exodus? A terrifying story. And the climax, the end of the story, is when God sends the destroyer, the judge, the angel of death over Egypt. God is going to judge the world. He will do it at the end of time, but every once in a while in Scripture, you get a taste of it. And so here you are with a little taste of judgment in the middle of the Exodus story. Egypt is imperialistic and violent and cruel in order to free God's people from slavery. Just a little bit of judgment gets inserted into the life of Egypt just for a moment. Egypt is judged. Israel is saved. You remember how Israel is saved? It's not through the Ten Commandments. It's not because they know them or follow them not through having attained some certain standard of, uh, of moral achievement. 
You remember what they were told to do? Go out and find a lamb, a young, beautiful, innocent creature. And you take its life. You take the blood which gave it life, and you paint it on your doorposts and your thresholds. And when that happens, when the judgment of God passes over the city, it will pass over your house. And they celebrate to this day Passover, remembering that moment. This is the single most important moment in the life of the Old Testament. It is the dramatic salvation history of Judaism. But, but I want you to remember that, that God saved his people through judgment. And the hope of, of the people of, of Israel wasn't in their own ability it wasn't in their own religious achievement. They didn't think that they were going to escape judgment. Their only hope was that somehow judgment would fall past them because of this substitute. Because of this, this indication that this lamb, which they had set aside and had given his life, that, that, that was the point of the whole sacrificial system. And yes, it's gory and it's graphic, and it seems barbaric and absurd to the modern mind. But realize that the central idea of the story is there is judgment and there is grace. There's not one or the other. There were both. There's judgment and there's grace, and it's not free, and it certainly wasn't cheap. If you follow through those little cross-references, not only does Psalm 98 sound an awful lot like that song of Miriam, which references the most dramatic salvation story of the Old Testament, it sounds almost word-for-word similar to the song of Mary. You know, Mary sings, too. It's part of the birth story of Jesus. Luke chapter 1. Words that some of you know that are called the Magnificat. Listen to what she sings. His holy arm has worked salvation for him. He's remembered his love to Israel. It's almost like Mary with with that little heartbeat beating inside her womb is singing through the Psalms, singing Psalm 98, singing the Psalm of Miriam. And as she's singing, she's starting to work it out, to realize that this child that she carries through a miracle of the Holy Spirit would not just be the fulfillment of all the promises of the Bible, but might in fact be the resolution to this age-old problem, this tension that just didn't seem to be resolved. In fact, Jesus solves the problem of judgment. How? Here's how. If the blessing of God is conditional on perfect obedience, and yet it needs to be given to imperfect people, how do you line that up? until Jesus shows up, we said it falls to one side or the other, liberal or conservative, relativists or moralists. We're either more holy than good or more good than holy. But then it all changes at the cross. How does it change? John Stott, one of our great gifted writers and a godly man, said that the essence of sin is to put yourself up there in place of God. This is what he wrote exactly. The essence of sin is to put yourself where God deserves to be. But the essence of salvation is God putting himself where we deserve to be. Where is that? On the cross. Even though we owe him everything. We have our own lives. What is it we deserve? We deserve to be cut off. 
But it's almost like this. The judge finally appears and he assigns a fine and then he pays it. The judge appears and he assigns the penalty and then he takes it himself. On the cross, the love and the holiness of God coincide and they shine forth brilliantly. They coincide. Why? Because because the law demands perfect satisfaction. You either obey it or if you don't, you fall under the penalty. But on the cross, the law is perfectly satisfied. What is it that love wants, though? Love wants exemption. Love wants redemption. Love wants to be lavish. Is there anything more lavish than the cross? It's not that love gets its way and the law doesn't, or that the law gets its way and love doesn't. Law and love both perfectly satisfied, both equally satisfied. On the cross, the love and holiness of God perfectly coincide and they shine brilliantly. So the question, are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? The answer to the question is yes. Yes to both. Exactly. Yes to both. Think of it like this. Two kinds of kids. Neglected kids and abused kids. There's lots more kinds of kids, but that's the two we're thinking about right now. Neglected kids grow up thinking there are no boundaries. It's all hands off for them. They grow up not knowing what the limits are because the parents say you can do whatever you want. They're the neglected child. And then there's the abused child who grow up quivering in terror that some parent or parental-like person is just waiting to bring the hammer down on them in life. If you believe in a God who doesn't judge, a God who just accepts everyone, isn't that kind of like that neglected child? You might believe in God in some general way, but not in a God who cares enough to tell you what your life ought to be, to what human life ought to look like, to what you were meant to be like. You don't believe in judgment. You might believe in a God like that, but you will, you'll feel a little bit like an orphan because you don't have a God of costly love, a God who tells you that you're created for more and shows you when he goes to the cross, knowing that you're going to fall short, but he still wanted a way to accept you and hold you. You're not an orphan. You're not an orphan. At the same time, you may be an abused child. You may have a harsh God, a God that you think is waiting just behind every dark corner to pounce on you and take you down. You don't have a really good grasp on the grace and the love of God. You always feel unworthy like an abused child. William Cowper is not a name that we know anymore. He, he was a superstar of the 18th century in the church, if the church has superstars, I guess. He was a gifted hymn writer, just incredibly gifted in his ability to take truth and distill it to a few lines and set them to music. I don't think we sing much by him anymore, and it's a shame, but he nailed it absolutely when he wrote these words. He said, to see the law by love fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Once you realize that, Judgment Day is over because it's already in the past. 
It's already been done. And yes, we can look forward to the day of the king's return, but just as a day of beauty and glory and love, and will at last be like one of those characters in the great C.S. Lewis fantasies, who at last, when he gets to heaven, says, I'm home. I belong here. This is the land I was looking for my whole life. But I didn't even know it until now. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for the promise that judgment can be ours, for the joy of Judgment Day, for the knowledge of Judgment Day, that knowledge that someday everything is going to be put back all right, so we don't have to take vengeance. The knowledge that someday things are going to be put all right. And so when we lose things, or we feel ourselves aging or slipping away, when we see people dying, we know that someday everything will be put right. With the joy of judgment day. Because Jesus Christ, your son, solved the problem. And God, we rejoice, we celebrate him. The judge who was judged came to earth and took it all. Thank you that because of that, we can look forward to the future with this incredible hope and poise and peace. Make us into the kind of people who live out of that awareness. Make it real to us. Make it real so that we can live our days with confidence that can't be taken, can't be shattered. Make us live in the light of the hope that we share in Jesus' name. Amen.